Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hello, I'm Edward McBride, Asia editor at The Economist. This week, The Economist asks American writer, policy analyst, historian, and Asia expert, Michael Oslin. Every major nation in Asia has a territorial dispute with its neighbors. And in fact, some of them, such as Japan, has a territorial dispute with all of its neighbors. Michael Oslin is a former professor at Yale University. Today, he's a resident scholar and director of Japanese studies at the American Enterprise Institute, a think tank in Washington. His latest book is called The End of the Asian Century. Michael, welcome to The Economist. Thank you, Ed. So tell me, The End of the Asian Century will strike many people as a surprising title. Um, They weren't quite sure the Asian century had arrived, let alone that it had finished. Explain a little bit. Well, I actually started off writing a book that was going to be part of the common wisdom that uh, the Asian future would define our our world. Uh, The shift of economic and political power from west to east was inexorable and that the United States really had to figure out a way to shift its Atlanticist DNA to something more focused on the Pacific. What I discovered as I was going around Asia for the interviews for this book is that there were an enormous number of problems, uh, most of which my Asian interlocutors were bringing up to me saying, you guys aren't focusing on this. You're not thinking about our demographic problems. You're not thinking about our economic slowdown uh, or the fact that we're getting closer and closer to armed conflict. So after resisting uh, the thought that there were real problems in Asia for a while, the, the focus of the book actually shifted, which was to say that there's another side of the story. And if we don't start paying attention to these issues, if we don't start thinking about what could derail Asia's future, we'll be caught by a surprise that would dwarf a lot of the other surprises we've had in recent years. So in effect, you're saying the world's too optimistic about Asia and that there are various areas we need to be worried about. Can, can you walk us through them? What, what are the particular concerns you identify? Sure. I think that the, the first issue to note is that we all have had sort of one story about Asia for the past almost half century, whether it was Japan or then China and, and possibly now India. It's been this assumption that there would be this linear growth upwards and that concomitantly Asia would become a political and, and military giant. And while certainly so much of that has become true, what we didn't look at were all of the fractures running underneath the surface. So we we took the, the easy way of looking at the successes, but didn't delve deep to see, are these gains uh, sustainable? Are they, uh, do they threaten, for example, uh, social stability or cohesion, uh, as well as Asia's role in the world? And so ultimately, I came up with what I call a risk map of Asia. You know, we all know what the geographic map looks like. We know what the countries are shaped like in, in the oceans. But I wanted to come up with something a little bit different to capture the idea of risk. So I came up with this idea of a risk map in the book. It looks a little bit like a Lord of the Rings style fantasy map that walks you through to, uh, the five risk regions that comprise the five chapters. And they are, first, the failure of economic reform throughout the region. Secondly, what I call the Goldilocks dilemma of either too many or too few people 
Third, unfinished political revolutions, uh, so the, the question of domestic stability. Fourth, why can't we get along, which is about the lack of a broader Asian political community. And then fifth, uh, the one that Washington is most interested in, of course, is the clouds of war. How close is Asia to an armed conflict? All right. So we've got a, a litany of, of, of potential uh, uh, disasters awaiting in Asia. Let's start with the economics. Obviously, the Chinese economy has slowed a lot. Uh, you talk about that. And there are other economies in the region that aren't in great shape. And the world economy is not doing that well. How, how pessimistic are you? I'm pessimistic in the sense that we are still not paying attention to some of the real threats, I think, that lie on the economic horizon. For example, the debt problem in China, a massive problem. Some economists estimate it may be up to $20 trillion worth in a much more fragile financial system than, than what we have in the West, for example. Uh, problems with workers, for example, throughout the region. First of all, in China, there's the beginnings of a labor shortage because of the demographic issues, the lack of competitiveness in a lot of the region, the collapse of innovation that marked, for example, the Japanese economy in the 1970s and 80s. The fact that the state is still too much of a player in most of these economies. The state-owned sector continues to be extremely strong in China. It may have shrunk numerically, but qualitatively it is larger than ever. The fact that regulation is uh, still too much of a fact of daily life in, in Japan or South Korea, for example. And the problems that the Southeast Asian nations and nations like India, which are starting up the ladder of uh, modernization and development, have in really getting to a level of sustainability, of really moving into something that uh, allows them to take uh, the, the most advantage of an open global trading architecture. And instead, if you look at Indonesia, for example, it is still a, a very closed economy because of political and, and social concerns. So the book in dealing with democracies on the one side and autocracies on the other from closed economic systems to op open economic systems tries to, to take just a, a, a much broader snapshot of the, the dangers to Asia's economic growth that, again, don't predict that it's going to collapse, but at least raise the question that the, the heyday of economic growth may be over in Asia, that we have to adjust ourselves to a much more moderated economic growth. And then uh, reassess all of our, our own assumptions about investment and trade and opportunity and the like. And, and that, I think, is a question that we really haven't grappled with yet. Okay. And, and so you mentioned demographics in there as, as uh, one factor that may play a part in the Asian economy. It's a very big factor, right? I mean, so big that you actually devote a whole, a whole section of your, your book to it. That's another area w w where there are potential problems stored up. Yes, it's the one that interestingly, I think in many ways drives almost all of the political and eco economic calculations of the governments in Asia, but gets almost no attention, certainly in Washington, D.C. People just don't talk about the demographics. Uh, and it's why I called it the, the Goldilocks chapter. Countries have either too few people or too many people. So on the too few side, if you look at Japan, it's already in a population decline. This was something that was baked into their demographic cake in the 1970s. Uh, they dropped below replacement rate in the 1970s. They've had almost half a century to figure out what to do about it. And the answer is they've, they've done almost nothing. They, they have not raised the demographic rate. They have not opened up to immigration. They've pursued more of a, a course of uh, investing in robotics and the like. But only now, when they actually tipped into negative uh, demographic territory, has it become sort of a first-order political issue. Almost all of the developed economies in Asia are facing the same demographic slowdown, if not decline. So South Korea's demographic uh, rate, its birth rate is lower than Japan's. Taiwan faces the same thing, Hong Kong, Singapore, 
and the like. Of course, the difference between these countries and China is that they're all wealthy. And so they are able, in, in the case of Japan, for example, as it's entered into this cycle, much more able to deal with the demands of an aging populace for entitlements, for social services and the like. A, they have a buffer, so to speak. China will be a different story. So as regards the one-child policy in China, which they had in force for about 40 years and which was scrapped in 2015, the effects of that are going to bite in China before it becomes wealthy enough to actually deal with all of the demands that will be put on the state, especially in, in a society in which kinship ties were very important for employment, for financial support, for all sorts of social support. As those kinship ties shrink because you have fewer people, uh, the those who remain will be looking for other sources of support. It will most likely they will most likely turn to the government, but this is not something that the Chinese government has ever fully provided, and, and in fact, uh, in in some ways, was behind its its capitalist counterparts in terms of national pensions and and health uh, services and the like. So the real danger in China, I think, going forward is that it is going to get old before it gets wealthy. That it will be a a strong pressure on the, the government and the party to provide for people and that will uh, demand that their voices in, in essence be heard. This already is biting, uh, as I mentioned before, with a, the, a labor market tightening. Most of the available labor, certainly the skilled labor, has already been absorbed in China. That has uh, caused rate wages to rise. Now, in the short run, that's been good for, for Chinese workers and, and by extension, the Chinese consumer because they're able to uh, have more to, to put into a consumer economy. But it is also making Chinese goods less competitive. And so others throughout Asia are looking to step into that, that gap. So Vietnam, for example or Malaysia trying to move with lower cost labor into areas where China was once dominant. So it is a, it is a cycle that will uh, certainly, I think, determine a lot of Chinese government policy that is both social and economic in the coming decades. And the, the potential for these populations of either older people or in the case of, of other less developed countries like India, you know, younger people who don't have jobs or aren't sort of sufficiently looked after by the state, that obviously raises the specter of, of uh, some kind of political unrest, right? Is, is Asia robust enough to absorb the tensions that these demographic pressures will, will put on governments? Well, I think that is going to be uh, the, the test in the coming decades is how well these governments handle the, the demographic and, and associated economic pressures. Uh, some of them, I think, will do fairly well, like Japan. I think uh, the democracies will have a particular challenge because the, the voices of the electorate will be heard and what you may see is more instability in the democracies in the short run. And South Korea is a very good example. The million people who are out in the streets of Seoul in December protesting against Park Geun-hye, the president who was impeached, were not there solely because of a pay-for-play bribery scandal. They were there because young people call South Korea a country with no future. They call it Hell Korea. They see a country of widening income gaps, of lack of opportunity, of personal indebtedness because so many uh, South Koreans go into debt to pay for education, and that there's no payoff at the end. And they see also the pressures of, a, of a, again, a shrinking demographic. So I think you'll see in the democracies, as we saw in South Korea, immediate sort of pressures on, on the government and governments responding. So in Japan, you saw dramatic swings between political parties from 2007 on where uh, massive electoral majorities were given to one party or the other, the Democrats or the liberal Democrats, in order to, to rule. The challenge for China, of course, is very different. 
It is, as an autocracy, and already one that is faced with, by best count, something like 200,000 types of protests every year, it faces the complete potential complete collapse of legitimacy of the communist government. The social contract in China, especially after Tiananmen Square back in 1989, was no political freedom for economic growth. As economic growth moderates, uh, and some economists think China may already be in stagnation, but as it certainly moderates and as the future looks uh, that there are less opportunities than you have today, there will be more pressure uh, on the government in order to open up the, the political sphere because people will want their voices heard or they certainly will want to know that their future will be taken care of. This really risks the legitimacy of, of the party and the government and could potentially lead to widespread unrest. And that, I think, by the way, Ed, is why uh, Xi Jinping has already begun the crackdown on civil society, cracking down on NGOs, cracking down on lawyers and other groups, tightening up on, on the press and the media and the like. It's because they understand and the pressures that are building in society already. If there is this political pressure building up in, in different forms in different countries in Asia, obviously one of the, the natural responses is, is some kind of political populism like we're seeing all over the world or some kind of nationalism to, to sort of try and sublimate you know, domestic unrest, sort of project it outwards. And, and you explain in the book how that's a particular problem for Asia because Asia doesn't sort of have... The, the diplomatic ties that would that, that would allow it to really weather that that kind of, of nationalist tension. I think that's right. First, we are seeing an uptick in populism, but it takes different forms uh, in Asia. So, for example, in the Philippines, it was actually a, a populist uprising that put Duterte into power, you know, so capturing the commanding heights of the government. And he has pursued a very populist foreign policy and domestic policy while in office that has upended decades of Philippines foreign policy towards the United States, for example, uh, and has you know, been very controversial in terms of its uh, approach to drug dealers and, and drug rehabilitation and the like. In China, it is certainly the case that the government has used populism at times uh, to divert from uh, domestic problems and used it in a way against Japan, for example, or the United States. But it is a, a double-edged sword and Beijing is very worried about unleashing populist forces that it cannot control that could be turned on it. Uh, what you don't have in Asia 70 years after the end of the war is really a either a viable political community that sort of transcends all of the nations and allows them to figure out ways to work together or deep relations of trust. Uh, one reason for that, I think, is that the three largest nations in Asia, China, India, and Japan, uh, are also former colonial masters of Asia in their own right. And so there is the historical baggage and distrust of Beijing and New Delhi and Tokyo. In addition, their, their very size makes the smaller Asian nations very worried about their influence and ability to, to pressure or intimidate them, uh, as the case may be. Compared to 20 years ago, there's a lot more that Asia has to offer in terms of multilateral institutions and, and organizations and mechanisms. You think of ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, the East Asian Summit, uh, the Asian Defense Ministers meetings and the like. There is no question that the Asians come together more regularly to talk these days. It, is, it has become normalized that they will gather and talk. But that has not created a community of the type that allows them to jointly solve problems 
problems or even identify problems. And so every time there is a crisis, it's either dealt with in an ad hoc basis or on a bilateral way. And so this question of populism would really test the, the ties between many of these states. And I think that we would probably be very concerned to see how, as a community, Asia is able to deal with its rising tensions. So that really brings us to, to, the, to the culmination of your argument. Uh, we, we have these potential economic problems. We've got these demographic pressures. We've, we've got relatively frail domestic politics within a lot of Asian countries, relatively weak diplomatic mechanisms to, to absorb uh, potential conflicts. That brings us up to the idea that maybe armed conflict is more likely in Asia than, than we imagine. That, that, that's your thesis more or less, isn't it? I think that's right. I think, unfortunately, Asia is closer to an armed conflict today than it was five or ten years ago. And that actually goes against our understanding in the West of modernity and and modernism. We make the assumption that as states get wealthier, as they develop middle classes, uh, as many of them become more liberal in their political systems, but certainly as they trade and deal with each other more, they solve their problems and they learn how to deal with outstanding issues short of threat of armed force or the actual use of armed force. That is not where we are in Asia today. And if anything, Asia has moved closer to Machtpolitik than it has uh, from sort of Idealpolitik, the idea that transnational institutions will solve these problems. It has confounded, I think, many of the observers of Asia who rightly celebrate the economic gains but can't understand why rocks in the middle of the South China Sea or potentially the East China Sea may cause a conflict between its largest nations. Every major nation in Asia has a territorial dispute with its neighbors. And in fact, some of them, such as Japan, has a territorial dispute with all of its neighbors. Uh, and China has a territorial dispute with almost all of its neighbors. Some of them have multi-parties. Some of them are bilateral. But the fact is that as Asian nations, which now collectively spend more on defense than Europe uh, and collectively more as a group than any other part of the world, as they engage in an arms race, uh, as they buy weapons from Russia and from the United States and sometimes from China, they find themselves more willing to confront each other over these uh, specks of territory in, in the oceans. And that has certainly driven uh, the regional relations over the past several years, if you think of the South China Sea or the East China Sea. And now it's dragged the United States in. So I'm glad you mentioned the U.S. Although we've been very pessimistic so far, the, the, the conclusion of your book is quite optimistic in the sense that it suggests that peace can be maintained in Asia. The Asian century can be a wonderful one. Um, it, it's really reliant on the U.S. and, and American engagement. I think that's right. Uh, I think that we have a lot of the answers already. We know what works. We have to be more committed to it, uh, such as free trade. Uh, and if TPP really is dead and the, the president signed his executive order uh, withdrawing the United States from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, then we have to push very strongly on bilateral free trade, uh, which is something that he said he is in favor of. The, the fact that TPP is dead does not mean free trade is dead. So we need, to, we need to push forward. But that is a way to link nations together and give opportunity, provide competition and the like. The United States, I think, needs to recommit on some of the values issues. It's not uh, a George Bush style um, freedom agenda where you're trying to, to sort of impose it. It is rather working with those nations that have liberalized over the past decades or recently, such as Myanmar, and trying to ensure that they have the support that they need as they, as they continue down this path. Uh, that, I think, actually does help create a, a larger community of interests in the region that can transcend pure political ideology so that China can become part of something that is, is a more vibrant discussion of 
evolution of society and uh, cooperation amongst nations. And then finally, it really I think is important that the United States maintain a robust military presence because it gives assurance to states. In many ways, the United States has been seen up until now at least as uh, an impartial broker and one that can help support smaller nations against larger nations regardless of the the set of issues. And so when you talk to the Asians, they're most worried about a precipitous U.S. withdrawal uh, of its military forces from the region because of the, the lack of cooperation and things that we mentioned before they think would open up a vacuum. So there's lots of things we can do, and I think that it would make the Asian century much more likely to continue. We'll have to wait and see. Anyway, Michael, thank you very much. Thank you. This week's guest on The Economist Asks has been Michael Oslin, whose latest book, The End of the Asian Century, is published by Yale University Press. If you have any thoughts on what Michael had to say about Asia's future, do please put them in an email and send them our way at radio at economist.com or tweet us at Economist Radio. And don't forget to pick up this week's issue of The Economist or look online at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist.